0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Christopher Wright. We talk about his trilogy on God in the Old Testament, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Talk a little bit about Christocentric hermeneutics and the different ways that you can see Christ as the center of scripture, and then the particular ways that he does so in his work. We also talk about the importance of a missional hermeneutic, as he has called it, and how we view the mission of God in Scripture. And finally, we talk a little bit about the implications of that. What does it mean to live as God's image bearers and as uh, caretakers of creation in this world? So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Chris Wright. Church Grammar is brought to you by B and H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out about all of their latest offerings, including the new book, For God So Loved the World, edited by Dayton Hartman and Walter Strickland about race and the church. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out about all of their latest study Bibles and resources, and to check out this English translation that is faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. And now my conversation with Chris Wright, but first, no. Big deal. All right, all the way from London, I have Chris Wright on the line. Chris, thanks so much for taking some time today.
1: You're welcome, Brandon. It's good to be with you.
0: All right, so let's, uh, let's kind of just start out by talking through uh, your faith journey. So how did you become a Christian? How did you get into academics? Kind of, what is, what is your story of going from uh, you know, a boy to a professor and a writer? Well,
1: that's a long story because I'm 70 years old. <laughs> so it's, uh, uh, it's been a while. I, I have the great joy and privilege, really, and blessing of having become a, a believer at a very early age. I, I grew up in a Christian home in Northern Ireland. That's what the accent is. Um, my parents had been missionaries in Brazil uh, before I was born. I'm the youngest of four siblings. Uh, and uh, so I grew up in a home where the Lord Jesus was loved and worshipped. And uh, at a fairly early age, my older brother asked if my name was in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I, said, <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. And he told me. And uh, I said, well, how do you make sure? And he said, well, you just need to ask Jesus to come into your heart, forgive your sins, and uh, and then you'll be in his book. So I did. Um, I think I must have been about six at the time, uh, and so I've kind of grown up um, intellectually alongside spiritually and physically, uh, and that I count as a great blessing. I grew up in a, not only a Christian home, but also a church where the Bible was taught regularly by a Welsh Presbyterian preacher, uh, so I kind of got familiar with the Bible quite early. Um, I suppose I, I got into academic theology um partly because I, I did i did classics at university in cambridge to start with and then i shifted over to doing a theological second part of my degree there um, and at that time we're going back now to the mid-1960s um, evangelical believers in the uk evangelical scholars in the uk people like john stott uh, michael green you know yeah, jim packer and others were all saying that there was a need for more people with evangelical convictions to be in the theological academy and to be teaching and so on. And I felt that as something of a calling. Um, I got a, a, a decent degree at undergraduate level, and so I then went back and did my PhD in Old Testament studies. Um, and uh, that's what led eventually to the book uh, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, uh, which pulls together some of my earlier studies in the economics, um, property laws, wealth laws, all to do with the kind of social ethics, really, of the Old Testament. Um, And that coincided, um, just carrying on, because by then, of course, it was the 1970s, um, and some uh, of your listeners may may either remember or know that in 1974 was the great Lausanne, the first Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization, which John Stott uh, led, along with Billy Graham, And uh, out of that came a kind of resurgence, certainly in in the UK at that time, a resurgence of evangelical commitment, not only to the scriptures, but to the engagement of culture with the Bible, uh, a desire to come out of the ghetto and really be in there, in society, in the whole field of economics and politics and the arts and education and medicine and everything else. And John Stott was very much our guru at that time. And And so my work on the Old Testament ethics began to get used and, um, you know, leading me into what is now, I I suppose, called Old Testament hermeneutics, although I didn't really know that word at the time, Uh, that is practical application of Old Testament thinking. So that, that was back in the 70s. I then did my Ph.D., um, and then uh, moved into ordained Christian ministry. I was a pastor or associate pastor in an Anglican church in England for nearly five years. Then went to India for five years with my family and was teaching there. That was a very good cross-cultural experience because that forced you then to connect the scriptures cross-culturally into uh, a context that wasn't as familiar as Britain in the West. Uh, that was useful, very instructive, very helpful And then I came back to England and was involved in a a missionary training college called All Nations Christian College here in England. Still there, it's still training people for cross-cultural mission. And I was there for 13 years. And that was a context in which the people we were teaching were mature believers. The the average age was about 30. Uh, These were mostly men and women who had already got a professional qualification or some degree and were then moving into cross-cultural international mission. And so again, my thinking was very much shaped by how does the Bible connect to that whole world of Christian mission, and how does Christian mission connect into the Bible? So uh, my thinking then was shaped by those years at All Nations, um, and that then went on till 2001, uh, at which point uh, John Stott, who had been a good friend back since the 1970s, I'd known John Stott since 1978, invited me to take over the leadership of the ministries that are now gathered together under the langham partnership uh the ministries of theological education in the majority world of christian literature provision and of biblical preaching training so uh, that's where i've been now since 2001 so i don't know if that's enough of my life story but (laughs) you did
0: (laughs) (laughs) no that no that's great um and it does show in your writing i told you this you know that um you do good academic work, very good academic work, obviously, but it's very, very well written, very understandable, and always clearly you've you've had a long period of, of mission work and teaching theological education in church and lay settings, and so that shows in your writing. So I'm sure I'm sure, is that, you know, obviously always in the back of your mind as you're writing?
1: Yeah, thank you. It is. I, I think, uh, you know, people do say that, and I'm grateful for it. I appreciate it. But I think it's partly just the product of having taught uh, in um, both cross-cultural and international contexts where English was not people's first language. In fact, in, in India, for most of the students, it, the teaching wasn't English, but most of them were there, it was their second or third language. And teaching at All Nations Christian College for 13 years, only half the students were British, about a quarter were continental European, and the other quarter from around the rest of the world. So when you're teaching in a classroom like that, you learn, in a sense, almost instinctively to speak and talk in a way which is not too complex, doesn't use sort of, you know, complicated humor or irony too much. You know, you, you just learn to, to, to express things as simply as you can, even if what you're talking about ought still to be, you know, scriptural, biblical, uh, you know, deep. Uh, there's no excuse for, you know, being simplistic or shallow, but uh, deep truths can still be expressed uh, clearly and simply. So, yeah, that's that's what I try to do.
0: Yeah, so IVP uh, just recently came out with your uh, three volumes in one, kind of your trilogy of knowing God through the Old Testament, knowing Jesus through the Old Testament, knowing the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament. So, um, you know, know, uh, knowing Jesus through the Old Testament was one of the first books I ever read uh, on sort of anything that resembled a Christ-centered, you know, uh, hermeneutic, for lack of a better word. Um, And so there's been a proliferation of that over the years, obviously. It's really picked up steam, it seems like, in the last 10 years. Um, but yours was one of, if not the very first one I ever read uh, that was doing that. So uh, maybe talk through that a little bit. You know, Like I said, Christ-centered, Christotelic, hermeneutics, whatever you want to call them, are pretty popular, and there's even a lot of debate uh, within them uh, about what actually you know qualifies as a something from the Old Testament, what qualifies as a prophecy, what qualifies as a fulfillment. So talk through some of just your kind of big idea methodology on that book as you were thinking through that.
1: Yeah, thank you, Brandon. I mean, the first thing is to go back to where it all began Uh, it began really when uh, I was living and working in India and teaching the seminary there uh, and I was asked to teach a course on Old Testament hermeneutics um, how do we handle the Old Testament and I was struggling around quite a bit to understand how how to go about that and then I I read an article that had been written by John Goldingay who uh, many of your readers will remember a professor in uh, Fuller Theological Seminary for many years and, and a good friend of mine from way way back Uh, And it was an article looking at how Matthew uses the scriptures, as he would have called them the Old Testament, we call it, just in the first five chapters of Matthew's gospel. Uh, And he he made points, you know, that for Matthew, the Old Testament tells the story which Jesus completes. The Old Testament uh, declares the promises that uh, Jesus fulfills. The Old Testament provides uh, the identity that, you know, that Jesus accepts at his baptism and so on. And I thought those were such good points um, and so clear that I, I wrote to him and said, uh, would you allow me to use that as a framework for a whole lecture course? Uh, so, so I did. Uh, so I taught through how we handle the Old Testament in relation to the way the New Testament does, obviously, and in a sense that was Christotelic, as we're now learning to, to call it. And that's what then led me to feel that I could write this up as a book. So it was actually while I was living in India I I started the first few chapters of that book, and it was very much motivated by, as I say in the preface, it was motivated both, well, partly from a scholarly point of view of trying to say something that connected um, the Old Testament to the new in ways which had, I hope, uh, some level of critical credibility. You know, we're dealing here with issues like typology, uh, like uh, the way the New Testament writers actually do make use of Old Testament texts. Uh, in their writing and so on. So there was a, uh, an academic background to it. But I was also conscious that uh, the Old Testament gets so badly neglected in, in the Christian church including among evangelical Christians who may sometimes never read more than a few psalms or uh, a favorite verse at Christmas or something like that. But by and large, the Old Testament was so neglected. And I thought, well, how come people claim to love Jesus and know Jesus and be disciples of Jesus, and yet they are ignoring the the scriptures that were so formative in his consciousness uh, and his sense of mission? And so it was a desire to help people see Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament Scriptures, but also simultaneously to see the Old Testament Scriptures through the lens of Christ. Um, And and it is is sometimes hard to decide which of those two was was more dominant in my thinking at the time. Yeah.
0: Yeah so you and, and the way you kind of frame it is you know the Jesus and the Old Testament story the promise the identity the mission the values uh, in God. So what were some of the sort of guardrails where you said this this is where I want to stake my claim on this is a fulfillment this is a typology type thing and what were some things or what are some things you've seen in other methods that you would say ah that's probably a little too far what, just what are some kind of guardrails that you use when you're thinking through that Well the
1: first the, the first guardrail was my uh, somewhat allergic reaction to to people who want to, as it were, see Jesus in every Old Testament passage or text. Uh, People have the idea that, well, we we know, we believe as Christians that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, so uh, in that sense, everything in the Scriptures point towards him. I mean, he himself says that, you know, that the Scriptures uh, speak of me. But the way that then filters down into some kind of popular thinking and preaching, and I've heard this said, you know, people reading, say, a passage of Nehemiah, and they're saying, this must be all about Jesus. So where's Jesus in this chapter? And I'm going to Jesus ain't in that chapter. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is, how is this part of a story which leads us to Jesus? We, we, this is a, uh, a moving text. This is part of a journey there's a sense of dynamic progress in this text. It's like a series of scenes uh, in the narrative or the dramatic text of the Old Testament. And we know that Jesus is the end point. He's the destination. He's the climax. But that doesn't mean that every time you read a verse in a psalm or somewhere else, it's all about Jesus. Because that can so often be quite distorting. And I did hear a a sermon once preached on the text in Amos, you know, which talks where Amos says about let uh, let justice flow down like, uh, you know, whatever it is, waterfalls and righteousness like a never failing stream. And he talked a little bit about righteousness and then went straight on to say, well, of course, the only righteousness we can have is through faith in Jesus. And so he then he started to preach justification by faith. And I was sitting there getting really quite cross because I thought, That's not what Amos is talking about. I mean, what you're saying, preacher, is true. (laughs) Um, But if you're going to preach that, preach it from Paul, uh, you're actually disrespecting uh, Amos by turning righteousness into something that he wasn't actually talking about, even though, of course, in Old Testament terms, tzedakah, uh, mishpat, and so on, have God-focused dimensions as well as horizontal focus. It, It is something to do with being in a right relationship with God, uh, in our response to him by faith and so on, but in Amos's terms, it was much more to do with the horizontal relationships uh, on earth and how we deal with other people and the poor and so on. So, by as it were, by jumping straight to Jesus, that preacher was effectively failing to exegete and interpret properly an Old Testament text. So that that is one guardrail on one side: uh, is it, it's not just all about Jesus. But the other side is, I'm also I was because I am, you know, an evangelical believer, and I, I believe the scriptures, and I believe that they speak about Jesus. Is that, of course, I can only read the Old Testament as a Christian believer. So I, I have to receive these words, these chapters, these scriptures, as something which ultimately find their coherence, and their meaning, and their significance uh, in the light of Christ and indeed of the light of the rest of the story, taking us right through to the eschaton. I mean, ultimately, we have to, I think it was Martin Luther who said, we read the Bible forwards, but we understand the Bible backwards. In other words, we only really understand the whole story when we've got to the book of Revelation, and we see where it's all leading. But for sure, I wanted to be interpreting the Old Testament scriptures not just as a critical scholar, as we excluding or sidelining any kind of Christocentric theological interpretation, but to do that in a, in a responsible and disciplined, controlled way.
0: Yeah, I think that's what that's what's helpful about your work is you know there's like I said there's you know a hundred different ways to skin a cat when you're doing Christotelic or Christocentric readings, and people are going to quibble over what is and isn't okay and whatever but i think one of the things that you do that's really helpful is work a little bit against the excesses of where the old testament history is completely flattened to the old testament context is flattened and now we don't even know what amos was saying anymore or what what the point of of the text was so i think that's where you've been helpful is you know again yeah somebody could read your book and go well i would do more i would do less but at least there's that sort of you always have that good kind of balance and guardrail there
1: well, thank you. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, you, you could do more or less, and I appreciate that. I mean, even just this week, uh, I've been reading uh, Peter Lighthart's book, Deep Exegesis, which yeah. I, I recommend, because uh, he does show that, you know, if you're only concerned about the surface level of the text, and you say the text cannot mean anything more than the original author, then, you know, you may be blinding yourself to many depths in that Old Testament text, which New Testament writers and patristic writers could see easily that... that this is not reading something into the text. It's simply being open to all that God Himself is wanting to say to us through those texts. So um, that, to me, as it was a helpful and, and you know salutary reminder that uh, we can be so overly concerned about not getting into eisegesis that we then fail to exegete everything that's actually there. Um, and so there, there's a balance to be had. I agree
0: yeah and I think yeah deep exegesis is a good example of that, I think you know because uh I do a lot of um research in patristics, and so um you know obviously there's there's some weird there's some weird stuff in the patristic yes. authors um but you know the the sort of uh the argument that the patristic authors were all allegorical and didn't care about the text is just not true you know i mean that's what they were that's what they were talking about, and so I think that's a helpful corrective too to say don't throw out uh half of church history either just because you think it's too allegorical or whatever yeah yeah. So let's uh, talk about the Holy Spirit a little bit as well. So a little less controversial in some ways to talk about the Holy Spirit, but how did you work through that? You know, the Spirit on the one hand in the Old Testament is in some sense more uh, obvious and active in the Old Testament than Christ in a way, you know, at least in terms of personally, unless you want to talk a lot about Christophanes or Angel of the Lord type stuff, of course. but, um, But there's this sort of personal dimension that really comes out in the New Testament, it seems like. So how did you work through some of that?
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I'm not one that wants to see, you know, Christophanies everywhere. I think when the, when the text talks about the angel of the Lord, it's talking about the angel of the Lord, not necessarily the pre-incarnate Christ. Yeah. Though I'm not hugely objecting to that. I think, you know, if if, if the, the second person of the Trinity was the way in which God, uh, as the Trinity, chose to reveal himself to, to human beings in human form before Jesus, that's fine. I, I, it's not a problem to me. My, my problem is when people start talking about that being Jesus, I think we need to keep the word, the name Jesus, for the incarnate Second Person of the Trinity. Otherwise, we lose something of the unprecedented uniqueness of the incarnation itself, uh, of God becoming the Word becoming flesh uh, in Jesus of Nazareth, the Man Jesus. So, although I'm perfectly willing to say yes, we can see, you know, Christ in evidence in, in Old Testament if that's what we want to. See the God appearing as human, but I don't like just saying that's that's Jesus because I, I want to keep Jesus till we get to Matthew <laughs> uh, as a man. Yeah. The Spirit of God, of course, there are there are those who who uh, at a popular level who'd be surprised at what you just said that you know the, the Spirit is is so active in the Old Testament because some people have the idea that the Church only begins at Pentecost because that's when the Holy Spirit came down. Yeah, and, and of course we. we even when I was, I mean, the origin of that book was that I was asked to give a series of Bible expositions in a, in a Bible conference in Northern Ireland on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Let me, let me have a look. So I got up my concordance. I, you know, I, I tried to trace all the texts where I could find the spirit of Yahweh or the spirit of God. Uh, and I was just myself surprised at how many there are. I mean, there were some that I hadn't even noticed and that's how I then ended up uh, trying to categorise them into you know, the Spirit of God in creation, uh, the Spirit of God active in in the judges this, you know, as the Spirit of justice and deliverance, the Spirit that you read about in the prophets, you know, who, who uh, speaks through the prophets, as as the Nicene Creed says, and then the eschatological Spirit, the the, this, the outpouring of the Spirit, this look forward. So, there was a huge amount there, and and uh, and I felt well, that's that's worth doing as well. So I did the five Bible expositions. Uh, And then turned it into a book. And then um, I thought, well, this kind of goes along with knowing Jesus through the Old Testament. Let's look at my knowing uh, the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament. So the book kind of followed fairly naturally and is, of course, quite a bit shorter as well.
0: Yeah, so um, let's move a little bit toward your Mission of God book and some of the work you've done on mission. We've talked about that a little bit already. Uh, one of the things you introduce in the Mission of God is this missional hermeneutic, right, that there's a, there's a sense in which uh, at least some evangelicals or some Christians have not fully grasped the depth of the missional call, for lack of a better word, to the church or even to God's people in general. So talk through kind of what you mean by a missional hermeneutic and where where you see that and where you develop that.
1: Yeah, it's a, a phrase which in some ways I suppose I was doing before I even knew the phrase. Um, that's to say the, the the book, The Mission of God, emerged out of uh, the teaching that I'd done at All Nations Christian College. Um, and because there you were teaching people who were committed to mission in its broadest sense, they were going out to do stuff for God in other parts of the world, um, you were constantly asking the text as you were teaching it what questions does this text address to the world of mission if we if we look at missions and missionary work and so on in the light of this text what light does this text shed equally what questions do i address to this text that emerge from people who are engaged in cross-cultural missions say from a hindu context or from a muslim context or from the context of the poor or from the context of children or whatever it might be so there's the world of mission which brings its questions to the text and there's the text bringing questions to to the to the mission at the same time while i was teaching at that college there was a kind of one of those aha moments which happened in a in a in a faculty meeting when uh, one of the faculty uh, martin goldsmith um, speaking to us all as a group of teachers about how we should handle our students' work on the Christological passages of the Bible, that is, in the New Testament of John 1, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1.15, and so on. Those great texts about Christ, and the, the students in the second year had to do an exegesis of those texts. And Martin said, what we have to help them to see is not that they do some kind of objective, critical exegesis of the text, and then add on some missiological reflection What we need to help them see is that mission is in the origin of these texts. These texts only exist because Paul and the other writers were engaged in active missional engagement with both, on the one hand, uh, still unbelieving uh, Jewish people who had not who needed to see that Jesus was the Messiah on the one hand, and on the other hand uh, outright pagans in Greece and Rome and so on who had no knowledge of the scriptures at all. And so these are texts which arose out of mission. Mission is in the origin of the text. It's in the DNA of the text, not just in the outworking of the text. And I remember thinking, well, that's obviously true for the New Testament, of course. Is it also true of the old? And then I began to think, well, what's happening in the Old Testament? These These documents, the Torah, the books of the prophets, they also emerged out of God's engagement with God's people, the Israelites, for the sake of their engagement with the cultures around them, the idolatrous cultures of Egypt or of Canaan or of Babylon, and in those contexts God was trying to shape a people, the people of Abraham, to be those who could function as a blessing to the nations. And so the, the documents don't emerge, in a sense, out of active Christian, outgoing, cross-cultural mission. You know, these people weren't missionaries, in our sense of the word. But the people of Israel very definitely were, as it were, God's people in God's world for the sake of God's purposes. So as I began to think around that more and more, and then to try to teach Genesis or the Pentateuch or Isaiah, whatever it was, with that perspective in mind, uh, it, it became... It started me on a journey, really, in which I then began to get some students at, at master's level to do things like, well, how about doing a missiological reading of Ezekiel or of Jeremiah or of the Deuteronomic history or, or of the wisdom literature? What would it mean to look at this material from the perspective of God's universal purposes, God's purpose of blessing the nations, the Abrahamic uh, promise uh, of the clash of cultures between monotheism and polytheism, uh, the the clash of ethics between the Torah demands of God's people for holiness uh, at the level of political and economic and social and family life as against the kind of life that we see in Canaan, represented by Jezebel or whatever else. How would you interpret these texts with those criteria in mind? And bit by bit people started doing that. I was gathering this material uh, and then I thought, I need to write a book on this. And I started um, some early lectures on it, um, and I was then challenged to think it through more hermeneutically by uh, the, the person who taught hermeneutics in London Bible College at that time, Anthony Billington, who said, this is all very well, but does, is a missional hermeneutic a valid hermeneutic? You know, there's all sorts of ways of reading the Bible. The, the question is, does it fit the text? And that's where I thought, well I need then to justify this and that's what part one of the book was an attempt to do. Because around about the same time, I went to uh, SBL and I met and heard about this group of scholars in North America, both Canadian and and, and, and uh, United States, who were into this thing called missional hermeneutics, which I, it was a phrase I'd not heard of before. Uh, and I kind of got welcomed into that group, and so we had people like Michael Goheen uh, and George Hunsberger and Michael Barham uh, and various others. And there was an immediate kind of resonance uh, because there was this feeling the whole, the whole, the Bible as a whole is the product of God's engagement with his world, with his people. It emerges out of that. The Bible as a whole is God producing texts which then shape God's people for their mission in the world. And and so we, we read these texts from that perspective and we ask those questions, and that eventually becomes a kind of missional hermeneutic, which has now been described in various ways or three or four different ways of asking what that means. So that's that's how that book arose. Uh, it was a massive project. It was almost like doing a second PhD in some way. <laughs> um, but it, it, it very much... Spoke to my heart because the the two books, um, the the Old Testament Ethics for the People of God and the Mission of God itself, which are largely, which is a large amount of it is Old Testament, really coalesced around this point that God is on mission in this world. God has called a people into existence to participate with him in that mission, going right back to Abraham and now including us in Christ. But what kind of people do we have to be? And that's where the ethical dimension comes in, because God says effectively, if you're going to be my priesthood in the world, that is, a people who represent me to the world, then you've also got to be a holy people in the world, which means you've got to be different. And so the missional and the ethical kind of come together in, in, a, in a very coherent way, in, certainly in my own thinking now and in those books
0: So what are some kind of major points of continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testament when you think through a missional hermeneutic?
1: The main continuity is the narrative itself. Uh, And this is where I very much like the book by um, uh, Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew, you know, the drama of scripture. Yeah. It's an excellent book, and that idea that the, the whole scripture is a, is a narrative drama in six or seven acts from creation and fall and the promise of the Old Testament, the uh, the gospel of Christ, the mission of the church, and then I would put in the day of judgment as act six because I think the day of rectification when God puts all things right Leading ultimately to act 7 which is the new creation when God will make all things new So to see to see the Bible as a whole in that way I think is very helpful and I've drawn it on the back of an envelope. I've drawn it on the back of a a restaurant napkin uh, to try to explain to people how the Bible fits together as a coherent whole so there is enormous organic narrative theological continuity for the same reason, actually, there's discontinuity because the time has changed. We are no longer B.C. So, you know, we, we are living in an era which is now post the coming of the kingdom of God in Christ. It's we, we live in the light of the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We are living in a different time. So, so therefore, we, we, we look at the Old Testament the way Paul does in Galatians. That, that was like being in school, <laughs> you know. Um, now, when when you move out of high school and you become an adult and you move into the freedom of being an adult, you know, for, for freedom Christ has set us free, it doesn't mean that everything that happened in your school days is no longer important, that you learned nothing. No. What happened then still provides orientation and shape and direction and parameters for how you live as a free adult. <laughs> um and so I think there's something like that between Old and New Testament. Uh, we don't jettison all that is written for our instruction, as Paul says, all that was given by inspiration of God and is useful. We don't jettison that, but we realize we're no longer living there. We're no longer living in that era of Torah. We're now living in the era of Christ uh, and, and, the, and the outpouring of the Spirit. Um, so there is a, a discontinuity as well between the two, but within a fundamental Continuity, and to me, the the organic continuity of the whole Bible is the dominant paradigm, within which we see the different segments uh, of, you know, the patriarchal era, Abrahamic promise, the Torah era, the prophetic era, and then, you know, the, the gospel era, and so on. But it's uh, it's segmented in that way, but it's all part of one big story.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, The other thing you've brought up a few times is um, the role of ethics in the mission of God and how we think through some of that. So I know you've talked a little bit about creation care and communal responsibility and stewardship uh, of creation. So talk through a little bit that aspect of the mission of God.
1: Gosh, yeah. Um, Well, part of that, of course, comes from the Bible itself because— the Bible begins with creation and ends with new creation and and, and for a lot of people they forget that you know their, their, their Bible seems to begin with sin and judgment in Genesis 3 and ends with the day of judgment in you know in Revelation 20 um, and in between we've got Jesus who will solve our sin problem and give us a swipe card for heaven on the day of judgment hmm. and we sort of it's almost as if we've got damaged Bibles in which you know the first two chapters and the last two chapters have dropped off but I um, I don't want to be misunderstood. Of course, I believe in the reality of sin and judgment and wrath and salvation and, you know, all of that. Uh, that's absolutely fundamental. But the Bible isn't just a story about redemption from sin. The Bible is a story of the redemption of creation. It's, it begins with creation. It ends with new creation. And, and we need to hold on to that. So for that reason alone, I think, uh, we need to include God's purposes for his creation within our theology of what is the mission of God. What is God about in his world? And God is about more than simply saving souls for some ethereal heaven. God is about the business of creating a new heaven and a new earth in which we will live in resurrection bodies like the body of Christ, the risen Christ. There's all sorts of other reasons that one could give, and I've, I've written them up in various chapters in both the Ethics book and the Mission book, uh, in terms of, of the extent to which creation features in the Bible, which is often overlooked by many evangelical Bible readers. It's almost as if it's just background there. It's It's not real it's not what God is concerned about I suppose speaking today to you Brandon we know that we're living right now in the midst of this uh, coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic Um, and I I don't want to be suggesting that this is some kind of judgment of God uh, on us all but what I would suggest is that There are elements of it which now seem fairly clearly to be connected to human impact on the natural world, particularly on wildlife uh, and on the encroachment on um, habitats uh, and of um, the mingling together of wild and domestic animals uh, and and the destruction of of, of wild animal life and so on. That The crossing over of viruses from animals to humans is something which, One might say it hasn't just happened by accident. Well, in a sense, it has happened by accident, but it's an accident which has in part at least been contributed to by human folly and by uh, human destruction and depredation within the natural world. Um, And you you get the feeling that it's it's almost, I'm not saying God is saying this, but there's a sense in which um, we reap what we sow that there are certain principles built into creation, that if we mess with God's creation in, in the ways that we have been doing, in such destructive ways, creation fights back, and, and, and we pay something of the penalty, and of course the tragedy is that often when things like that happen, uh, it's the poorest who suffer most, um, both in our own countries, uh, our wealthy countries, it's always the poor who will be most badly hit and um, thinking of the majority world and uh, poorer countries with so few resources. So we, we are already witnessing something of the importance of our relationship to creation. And, of course, climate change, which has contributed to that, is another aspect. Again, it's the poorest who suffer. It is an ethical issue. It is a justice issue, I think, as well as a missional one, how we as Christians relate to God's creation. So, yeah, I'm I'm fairly adamant that there is a creational dimension to God's purposes for the world, and therefore there ought to be a creational dimension to the church's response to how we live as God's people in God's world uh, until we reach that new creation.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people see some of these issues as sort of like these big, um, you know, issues out there that, that we can't do anything about and they're too big for us, and Um, How are we going to fix, you know, these things? What are some ways that you would say, you know, for your average Christian living in whatever Western community or whatever, uh, what are some ways you would say, like, here's some practical ways if you're a Christian that you want to practice good, care of creation, stewardship of your communities, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, well, first of all to say we're not going to fix the world. Uh, That's not our job. Um, There's only one Savior, and it's not us. Um, You know, ultimately, fixing the world is God's job, um, and he has at one level, fixed it already uh, through the death and resurrection of Jesus which are cosmic in their scope. Uh, we need to be very clear about that, that Paul says in Colossians that uh, that not only has God created all things in Christ but all things hold together in Christ and all things have been reconciled to God through the blood of his cross. So. There is already God's redemptive work is at work in creation, and we can be grateful for that, and we look forward to uh, the new creation of which the risen Jesus is the first fruits, and he's the first fruits of that new creation. So our job is not to fix it, but to live responsibly— Has both a personal and a social impact because it means that at the very least we should be living in a way which is ethically um, consistent with with um, seeking to do the least damage that we can do to creation to be also conscious of what damage is being done to creation by the things that we eat. Um, And I'm not just talking about, you know, vegetarian or veganism. Uh, but, about even responsible and ethical use of the of the way we choose or the uh, you know how farming is done, and the, are we even aware of how farming is done and of animal welfare and so on uh, that we become informed about these things and 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 that we then seek to live in a way that is both with our eyes open and responsible it applies to the way we eat it also applies to the way we dress, the clothes we buy uh, the international you know trade in, in goods and in clothing and all of those things, there are a whole host of ethical issues which can impact the way we live personally and also the kind of things we advocate for in society, uh, which I think we can do as Christians. Um, I think as Christians also, whether as individuals or as organizations and churches and with um, Christian organizations like Arosha and others, we can have a prophetic voice. Now, you know, Jesus did say that the kingdom of God can be like mustard seeds, very small, but can produce greater results. So, even to act small can be a sign of the kingdom. It can be a mustard seed of the kingdom of God. Uh, we should never despair that because we're small and we can only do very little, that we therefore should do nothing at all. Um, that's you know that's the coward's way out, I think.
0: Yeah, that's good. So, um, and what are some uh, things that you are working on uh, for the next few years? Do you have any books coming out, articles, uh, any new ideas you're playing with, anything like that?
1: Well, uh, I will have a commentary on Exodus coming out, I hope, sometime this year. That's in with Zondervan in the Story of God Bible Commentary, yeah. which suited me very nicely because that Particular commentary series has has its uh, basic paradigm to treat every Bible book within the overarching Bible narrative. That's why it's called the Story of God Bible commentary. So uh, it was very not easy, but it, it was a very congenial piece of work. It was several years of work on Exodus to set each text, each part of the book within both what has come before, how do we see Genesis equity, here, and then how does this point us forward to the rest of the Old Testament and eventually in a Christotelic way through to, to the Lord Jesus. So I'm hoping that that's going to come out in December, uh, but it's, it's with the Zondervan at the moment. Um, I'm also working uh, at the moment on some beginning to prepare for something on the wisdom literature in relation to mission. Uh, it's it's one of the more neglected parts of the Old Testament in general terms anyway, um, although there's some very good writing being done on wisdom. That means basically Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. Um, I've been asked to do a, a short lecture series uh, in um, Truett Seminary in Baylor in October. Um, whether that will go ahead, we'll have to see. We, we may still all be grounded and sheltering at home then. I don't know. We'll see. But I, I've offered to do these lectures on that theme of and I'm calling it Wisdom in Mission, uh, what would be a, a missional hermeneutic uh, of the wisdom literature. And uh, so I'm, I'm working on that. I think it's a very fascinating area of the scriptures, the, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, um, very much neglected. Um, and so I'm hoping to maybe get something into, eventually into publication, but that won't be really until next year.